was a pivotal moment in the struggle for control of the Supreme Court. A president nominated a staunchly conservative firebrand, one who could swing the court strongly to the right, perhaps for a generation. But a liberal senator decided he was going to do everything he could to stop it. He rose on the Senate floor and gave a fiery speech that framed the battle to come and ultimately led to the nominee's defeat. The nominee was Robert Bork, a former Solicitor General, then a U.S. Court of Appeals judge, and the senator who helped sink him was Ted Kennedy. Even many liberals later acknowledged that the speech Kennedy delivered that day, July 1, 1987, was sensationalistic and over the top and likely distorted some of Bork's views. But it worked, and it may well have changed Supreme Court confirmation fights forever. As another conservative nominee undergoes his own confirmation battle this week, and Democrats look for any way to block him, we'll discuss Kennedy's memorable speech and the precedent it set on today's Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Danny, it's hard to reconstruct this many years later just what an epic battle the Bork nomination fight was, how important and consequential it was viewed for both sides. But in many ways, that Kennedy speech is the one that rings in people's ears when they think of it today. It was. Um and th- that was a huge turning point um, in Washington, uh, certainly judicial politics, but, you know, some would argue uh, uh, politics uh, more generally. Um, and um, yeah, I, th- I was bumming around Europe at the time, you know, getting drunk on cheap wine in Sp- Spain and Italy. So I didn't cover it. But good, good for you. <laughs> but yeah. my uh-uh. first kind of real reporting job in journalism was uh, right after that. Um, and I came back to work for a small paper that covered law and politics in Washington called Legal Times. And so I was kind of covering judicial uh, politics. And the Bork battle hung over everything. Um, It just um, was such an influential, important event, um, kind of defined um, judicial politics um, and turned it everything into kind of scorched earth warfare uh, from then on out. And you know, a few uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we did a uh, buried treasure about uh, this nomination of uh, uh, who Ronald Reagan, then the president, uh, selected to succeed Bork after Bork went down, Douglas Ginsburg, and of course he was defeated because he had smoked pot. Something revealed by uh, Nina. Totenberg of NPR in a uh, big exclusive, uh, but it was um, it was the Bork battle that really had legs, and you know it's worth remembering as we talk of it today uh, that this was the seat that finally went to Anthony Kennedy, um, who of course resigned this year and and this week as we uh, think about Brett Kavanaugh. It's that very same seat that, that was at That's issue. right, and and, yeah. and and that is part of the reason why all of these years later, you know, both sides um, of of that uh, you know huge battle continue to think they were right. And in terms of the liberals, um, th- what they would argue is, well, it ended up with uh, Justice Kennedy. Um, who was a swing vote and who uh, was the decisive vote um, in terms of uh, preserving uh, a woman's right to choose um, in in the Roe versus Wade uh, Wade case. Um, And so 
Uh, they would argue that uh, that was exactly the right thing to do. Others obviously would argue that uh, uh, it turned um, you know, Supreme Court confirmation battles into just another uh, political battlefield, and that's been corrosive uh, to, uh, to, to, to law and jurisprudence and, and politics ultimately. So we're going to have uh, uh, Ethan Bronner, who wrote a uh, who wrote a book about the Bork battle, on in a moment. But just to set it up, let's listen to what is uh, the most memorable part of that very memorable speech that Ted Kennedy gave that day. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, and school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. Pretty vivid language, I'd say, as rhetoric goes. Yeah, vivid language, um, and um, the Democrats were completely prepared for this moment, um, and they caught the White House off guard. And it's a kind of a rare example of of the Democrats uh, really uh, outmaneuvering and out um, organizing um, the the Republicans. Um, who at that point in our history tended to be more organized uh, when these kinds of political battles took place. We are now joined by Ethan Bronner, uh, who, as a reporter for the Boston Globe, covered the Robert Bork uh, confirmation fight and then wrote a book about it, Battle for Justice, How the Bork Nomination Shook America. Ethan, uh, welcome to Buried Treasure. Thank you, Mike. Um, so we just played the uh, most memorable line of that Kennedy speech. And I, uh, in Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. And it goes on. Set the scene for us uh, of when Kennedy gave that speech. Um, what was going on at that moment uh, and what prompted him to uh, frame it in that really highly charged way? Sure. So it was uh, Lewis Powell had uh, retired from the court only a week earlier, and uh, it was quite clear to those who cared about a conservative legal agenda that Robert Bork was going to be named. It was a huge campaign inside. I mean, it was somewhat similar to today. I mean, Reagan wasn't Trump, but but the Justice Department in the Reagan administration is very much the center of kind of the Reagan revolution, and they very much wanted Bork to be named, and they made sure he was, and the liberal left crowd uh, that Kennedy uh, helped lead knew very well that it was going to happen, and they were worried as hell about it. Because again, like today with the Kavanaugh nomination, this, uh, this was the, the so-called swing seat on the court, and the sense was that Bork was going to be able to turn a lot of things in the direction of the right, including abortion, Uh, and civil rights issues, affirmative action, those kinds of things. So what Kennedy decided to do was to sort of put it in the starkest terms possible. And within less than an hour after President uh, Reagan nominated Bork, he got on the floor and he made this speech. And it was quite an extraordinary affair because, as you say, it it sort of sounded like this was basically fascism on, on the way to America. 
And there was a lot of criticism about the speech. In fact, within the White House, there was a feeling that this was so insane that Kennedy had blown it. But in fact, what we saw over the coming few months was that the ability of the left liberal alliance to rise up against Bork was quite powerful and ultimately successful. You know, I'd like to dissect it a little bit, and uh, please, and and the basis for how for the language in Robert Bork's America, it's a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, school children could not be taught about evolution. Let's stop there and go through each of those points <laughs> okay. and tell us, okay. uh, was that an accurate and fair reflection of Robert Bork's views? So, look, I think that the difficulty here is that the subtlety of what a legal debate is about, as opposed to a policy debate. And, of course, they end up overlapping. And, of course, in the end, who cares whether it's a legal nicety? That, that was kind of Kennedy's view and the view of those around him. And to this day, they make no apology for the speech. But the idea that Robert Bork personally uh, wanted uh, back alley abortions, I think, in fact, that, uh, that Bork, especially as he got older, in fact, did oppose much uh, of legal abortion. But, you know, this so in and I think he certainly would have been an, an elephant certainly voted to overturn Roe versus Wade had he sat on the court. He but, had, you know, overturning. Had he publicly? He had publicly. Yes, absolutely. He, had, he, he thought, well, he thought Roe was a terrible decision. I don't think that he spoke well, that, personally that, and, about his opposition to abortion, but he ultimately converted to Catholicism and I think did personally oppose abortion. Yes. So that that uh, part is defensible, you would say. Well, it is vaguely defensible. I mean, I think that, look, I, I mean, you know, this is it, 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 we don't want to spend too much time on each one of these. But I would say that the fact that someone thinks that Roe versus Wade is a bad decision and that abortion is a bad thing does not necessarily mean uh, that he favors back alley abortions, right? I mean, in other words, he might, the, the, way that, the way abortion would be litigated in this country and legislated would be state by state. Uh, and I don't know that Bork personally would have opposed that. There'd be half the states where it would be legal, but certainly what, what, he, what, if you, what you wanna say is putting him on the court will make abortion uh, harder to get and, and increase the risk of back alley abortions, I think that's it, that it quite is defensible. So should we move on to the next one? Yeah, blacks you, sit yeah. at segregated lunch counters. Okay, so this is a really interesting one. And that has, this has to do with Bork in the mid-60s having written a piece for the New Republic in which he said that the public accommodations law, which required... Uh, restaurateurs and others to uh, serve non-whites or serve anyone they didn't want to serve was a violation of individual rights and was inappropriate. This was a huge thing when he wrote it. And in fact, unusually, the editors of the New Republic gave their response to his piece and saying, we think he's wrong. And in addition, it's fair to say, it's important to say that later, Bork said, you know what, I'm not sure I was really right about it. I mean, it's kind of worked out and I was kind of engaged in an intellectual exercise about what the law means and this and that. And that, you know, if we just stop for a second parenthetically, in a way is what did Bork in is that he, it seemed, I think, in the hearings and generally that this notion of an intellectual feast of sort of seeing where the law goes, that it seemed 
like he didn't really get that it really did affect a lot of people in ways that he at least wasn't willing to think too hard about. And that did him in. Ethan, let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about it for, the, for one minute, because there are a lot of people who think that that actually was a the maybe the key turning point in the confirmation hearing when uh, Hal Heflin, mm-hmm. Democrat mm-hmm. from uh, Alabama, Alabama and a former uh, chief justice of the Alabama Supreme mm-hmm. Court, uh, essentially asked him, why do you want to be a Supreme yes. Court justice? And he and it was at that point when he talked about the feast. law being an yeah. intellectual uh-huh. feast, which made him look like an elitist who was out of touch, who really had no no real feelings for, you know, the, the I little I think that's guy. right. Yep. I just want to, just one more on the uh, you know, dissecting that school children could not be taught evolution. Um, uh, so I'm not exact. I think the idea is, I'm sure I can't quite remember what that's based on. It must be based on a, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was somebody who felt that the, separation of church and state wall that had begun to be erected by the Warren court uh, and onward was overdone, uh, that uh, it was more important that, uh, that, that the, you know, the, an originalist interpretation of this country, uh, constitution and history is that religion should have a greater place uh, in public life than had been allowed. I think that's about as far as we can go with that. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, let me ask you, actually, let's do one more, because you, you talked about fascism before. Uh, one of the lines was, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. And uh, my recollection is that, that he was opposed to or at least critical of the exclusionary That's right, he was. Well, Explain I mean, that. He, I think he was, he was uh, a lot of stuff about, uh, about the Fourth Amendment uh, and about uh, privacy and those issues— he was critical of, right? I mean, privacy, which goes back to abortion and even, by the way, to uh, the availability of uh, birth control, right? Griswold versus Connecticut, the 1965 case, which made it illegal or unconstitutional for a state to bar uh, the selling of uh, of um, birth control. He opposed, he thought it was, a, for, you know, by the way, he's not alone to have thought the decision written by William Douglas was a little loose in its corners. It spoke about emanations and, you know, elements of how privacy was created. So he was, he was, you know, his, his opposition to these things uh, certainly allowed someone like Kennedy to talk about what it could lead to. Um, Right. So as a, you know, as a legal matter, uh, I think it's, uh, fairly clear that uh, Ted Kennedy uh, took liberties here. Uh, But as a but but this was a political speech. (laughs) Yes, of course. It was not it was not a legal speech and it was devastatingly effective and not just in terms of defeating Bork, uh, but, uh, you know, even uh, even the the next Supreme Court nomination uh, ended up with uh, George H.W. Bush nominated David Souter. Uh, there were a lot of conservatives who would have liked to have seen uh, Ken Starr mm-hmm. on the court or Edith Jones, who was a very conservative uh, court of appeals judge from the Fifth Circuit, um, even Clarence Thomas at that point. But the White, Reagan White House said uh, we won't be able to get uh, those people confirmed. And so it had an effect for uh, for a long period of time after 
after the defeat of Bork, uh, which was beneficial to, to, to Democrats. I think that's a fair thing argue. to say, yes. Now, I mean, you could also argue that the birth of the Federalist Society and the entire sort of factory of creation of hard conservative judges and lawyers and legal thinkers coming through the pipeline that is now feeding the federal judiciary was a direct reaction to the Bork fight and to the sense that we have to fight this on these terms and win. And so long term, I don't know who won, but I agree with you that, uh, that, that Kennedy, I mean, Reagan was weak for a bunch of reasons. This was 1987, seven years into his term. Uh, you know, he probably, uh, I mean, there were reasons to think he wasn't actually all that well at this point. There was the Iran-Contra controversy. The Democrats, uh, you know, had a, they, they felt their power. Uh, they didn't win, of course, in 88, but uh, uh, they, you know, they, they felt that they were getting somewhere. And they were. So you're right to say that. Um, by, the, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but one, it, it is also the case. The so go, go ahead, Mike. Uh, Ethan, do we know who wrote the speech for Kennedy? Uh, we do. It was his, the guy who, I forgot his name. He was basically did nothing but write Kennedy's words, uh, all the time. Although there's a guy named Jeff Blattner who was a young yes. aide, uh, who, yeah, yeah I who, remember uh, Jeff Blattner. Yep. Uh, and I think he was the main writer of it. Uh, but there's another guy whose name is slipping my mind because it's been a while, uh, who was sort of his words, Kennedy's wordsmith who wrote all the letters to black legislators. One of the other things to mention is that this, that Kennedy not only did that, but he wrote 5,000 letters. This is, of course, pre-internet. But that summer, he wrote to every single elected black official in America at any level and, and said, we, you, you need to get on, you know, and he, he ended up, there were preachers in black churches would take 10 minutes at the end of services to have everybody write an anti-work letter. They really made a campaign out of it. I was I was talking uh, before you came on the show uh, that this was a a uh, kind of a rare example of of the Democrats uh, really out organizing and out maneuvering uh, the the Republicans who tended to be better at this sort of thing at the, at the time uh, and they really used kind of Madison Avenue tactics direct mail and. Uh, advertising right. um, and all sorts of and and of course the the liberal interest groups who you know mostly fought among themselves on things really came together. That's absolutely for this true. Isn't that, yeah. right? Isn't that a mean, big part, part of, of the story? Is, of course, that, that Bork had written things that you that seemed offensive on oh, so many levels: women, minorities, free speech, a whole set of things. He also had raised questions about whether free speech, which, by the way, has become a right-wing issue these days, but in those days was still a left-wing issue, that it should be limited to political speech. So he had a whole bunch of, you know, he was a very uh, fertile, had a very fertile mind uh, and did raise legitimate questions, but it was a little scary for people to see him on the high court, in particular, and something we haven't said in this conversation, which is that from the late 50s on or mid 50s on, the courts were seen as kind of a way to move progressive society forward by those who felt legislatures were not getting there. So this this began a move back in the other direction, but it was a huge thing at the time. Idealists of the left believed that the courts were their domain, and this looked like it was going to start shifting. And of course, we are seeing that now. 
It seems to me that the long-term significance of this speech is twofold. One is, and, and I want to hear your thoughts. Tell me if you agree mm -hmm. or want to add or subtract that this was the moment uh, that Supreme Court confirmation fights, which in the past, uh, you know, were about personal integrity issues and the qualifications of the nominee became purely ideological. And uh, mm -hmm. and that has extended, obviously, to this day, as we're seeing in the uh, Brett Kavanaugh fight. Uh, and secondly, it was the moment at po after Bork, who was quite robust in responding uh, during his confirmation hearings, uh, when we got nominees who said virtually nothing during these confirmation fights, saying, you know, the most bland responses you could give, stare decisis, I respect the law and the facts, mm -hmm. the press and you really were never able post Bork to explore the the ideological views of the nominee because they wouldn't give it to you um, for fear of being Borked. And nor would they write law review articles that could in any way jeopardize a potential yeah. Yeah. nomination. Right. No, I think I think all those things you said are absolutely true. Uh, look, you do. Kavanaugh does have a history here. Um, but uh, but you know uh, I think you're right. He's gonna he's unlikely to say anything very meaningful. By the way, Bork didn't say all that much that was all that meaningful either when he got in front of those uh, senators uh, of the Judiciary Committee. He he kind of that was another problem. It almost seemed like he wasn't really willing to stand by the things he had said before in quite the robust way. So. You had also the sense of, wait a minute, we have a confirmation conversion. You had so many things going on, not to mention his, he's sort of an odd looking dude with the, the, the beard and everything. He didn't, you know, he didn't have that John Roberts all American look to him. That didn't help either. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, another uh, big difference, I think, um, is that the Bork hearing just riveted uh, the nation. I mean, we'd not seen anything uh, quite like that. And uh, in preparing for this conversation, I read that, um, you know, Arlen Specter you know, received something like 140,000 calls and letters from constituents. You know, that had never uh, happened before. And um, people are not really paying close attention to the Kavanaugh hearing. I was just talking to one of my colleagues who does social media for us, and we're live streaming it on um, on Facebook. And, you know, we had 400 <laughs> listeners. Yeah. You know, no, apparently last week there were 5,000. Last week there were 5,000 people watching the bees in Times Square at a hot dog stand. <laughs> <That's> so <right. laughs> it's a big, well, it's a big uh, difference. That, but to be, but, Does that say anything true. about how many people are going to be listening to this episode, by the way? No, no, no. But, but I mean, a, a part of it is because it, it feels like a done deal, right? In other words, one of the things that was interesting about uh, that battle in 1987 was that an Arlen Specter, who was a Republican, voted against. There is not a single Republican who will vote against Kavanaugh. So and they and they, since they have the votes, you, you, we're, it just sort of seems so clear where right. this is headed. Whereas with Bork, it really seemed up in the air. Right. Um, yeah. Well, suspense is always a good <laughs> yeah. thing for viewers. One final so. parallel worth noting, uh, and uh, on this, which is, of course, just before those words that we played from uh, from Ted Kennedy, he spoke about 
uh, Bork's role during Watergate. Uh, he was the guy who fired Archibald Cox when the Attorney General Elliot Richardson and the Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus would not do it. Uh, and um, Kennedy made much of that, that uh, Bork's view, Bork's protection of Richard Nixon and his expansive views of executive power uh, challenged the idea that a president was accountable to the law. And of course, that's going to be a very central issue uh, that Brett Kavanaugh is going to have to address, uh, given his expansive views of executive power and the context of this confirmation fight coming during a period that Donald Trump is still under criminal investigation by both a special counsel, Robert Mueller, on the Russia matter and the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. Yep, I, I agree with you. I mean, I will say that, uh, you know, to continue the parallel of why this one is not getting everybody all exercised, I don't think that Fort Charles and the Saturday Night Massacre ended up playing much of a role uh, in the battle, right? I mean, it was one of those things, as I say, you look for everything you could to use against him. I mean, the Kennedy and, and his allies threw everything up against the wall. It wasn't really what stuck. In this case, it's a little different because of what you just said about the president being under investigation. That was not the case of course, with Reagan or at that moment. But uh, I, I think it's a less sexy issue, except now. But again, there's just not a ch chance. Um, absent some major flub by Kavanaugh. Right, right, Unlikely. right. Uh, you're probably right. Uh, but uh, certainly the echoes of the Bork battle and uh, Ted Kennedy's uh, vivid uh, rhetoric uh, hang over uh, and are, are, are something to be remembered as we uh, as we watch these confirmation fights, uh, this confirmation fight over Brett Kavanaugh. Um, Ethan Bronner, thanks a lot for joining us on Buried Treasure. It's a, it was a great pleasure, both you, Dan, Dan, and Mike. Thank you guys so much. Best of luck. Thanks. And by the way, the your book, Battle for Justice, I've got a dog-eared, heavily underlined <laughs> copy of it uh, somewhere. I studied it closely. It's a terrific book. Thank um, you so much. And uh, everyone should yeah, read really it. really appreciate your saying it. Thanks to Ethan Bronner for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you on Friday. Thank you.